Again, wanted to uh, let you know, especially if you are a guest for the first time and if it feels overwhelming to be with all of these people, uh, hopefully you can feel at home. And, and hopefully we're a warm crowd here, but letting you know there's a lot of people who are new as well. So if you feel like you don't know other people, um, you you're join right in. What we want to do really quickly right now, um, what we do every so often during worship is this thing called Village Bricks, where we've had this idea since the beginning of the year of, of being, in a sense, the, the building of God, being the people of God brought together. And what that means is every single one of our bricks come together to add to that story as a whole. Um, so this is not planned. This is open mic. Wanted to give the opportunity, if any of you wanted to share a quick little word of how God is perhaps moving in your life, um, again, when I say quick, I, I mean quick. The arm of love might come out to bring you down if, uh, if you go too long. It's an arm of love, right? Um, but if anyone wants to share anything, feel free to come up. We do have a good, good amount to get through in the sermon, so I don't want to go too long with this. But if anyone would like to share something, feel free to come on up. I love it. Sometimes the silence of a room will compel many people to come up. It's a good thing. <laughs> okay, I'm going to, I think I guess I'll speak to probably something that Dan's going to speak about later. So my family situation isn't particularly great. My parents divorced when I was younger. Um, I was about seven and my mom's been married four times. And, and so I struggle a lot with like this idea of what a real family looks like, but in the, especially in the last couple of weeks, I felt, felt particularly um, overwhelmed with the sense of family at the village. For instance, I um, just a good example, I wrecked my car on Sunday coming back, coming to Baltimore, and I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? So I called Matt Metzger, and I was like, well, you could look at my car and make sure it's drivable. So he looked at my car and made sure it was drivable. And similarly, on Wednesday night at group, we had a big discussion about what I needed to do about my car, and I just felt very overwhelmed with a sense of family um, and being taken care of. And that's all. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> Did I see a hand somewhere? Hi, my, uh, <clears throat> my name's Grant. Uh, I'm starting to come to the... Uh, the village uh, since the 4th of July weekend, which I, that's when I first came this past year. And I've uh, been overwhelmed, you know, with a sense of community here. You know, I moved from Boston where I had a home church. Um, There's only like 25 of us, and um, we're really tight. We're like a family. And so coming here, it's nice to start. It's kind of daunting to start like a new family, but I feel like it's, it's growing and it's starting. Um, you know, coming to the small groups has been great. Um, <clears throat> but I just wanted to share... Um, something uh, that happened to me right before Christmas. I shared this with my small group, and I think I want to share it with everyone here um, because after talking with Dan about it, it seems like um, just holding this inside and not sharing it kind of might rob the chance of other people to um, be a steward of God and help me through um, you know difficult times in my life. And so uh, just uh, before Christmas, um, break one of my friends from Boston uh, she took her own life and she was a close friend of mine actually was one of the ones that really welcomed me to the church in Boston and it was something that's been hard for me to reconcile and to uh, just so many questions and but 
what it has done is it has brought me closer to my family in Boston um, and made me want to reach out more uh, to my, my friends here. Um, she's been a real, um, I don't know, she was like the most full of life person and that's what made it really difficult um, because she was younger than me. Um, she always had difficulty with certain things but she always kept it inside. Uh, but she always wanted to serve others all the time and I think that's something that really um, touched all of us and made us really want to um, regroup together to uh, love one another and to really appreciate uh, what God has given to us. And so I hope that we all appreciate uh, life. Thank you. Let's pray for Grant for a second if we can. If you um, just want to stretch a hand out, I know everyone can't come in here at the same time, but let's pray. Lord, we, um, we pray for our, our brother, our friend here. Just thank you for even your spirit um, moving in his life, God, giving him the courage and the, the heart to share this. And I know it's not easy to talk about. And uh, the circumstances definitely, um, I mean, our minds are not created to be able to wrap around that. that we just don't have um, the mind space to be able to understand those kind of things. And I know, I know Grant's right there in the middle of that. So as he does that, as he, as he lives, you would give him strength, Lord. In those times when he feels alone, feels like no one understands, may he know your presence in ways that perhaps he never would otherwise and be close to him. And we, and thank, we thank you we, that we know we don't have to conjure you to have to be close to us. You already are. But sometimes we pray for your spirit to guide us closer to you where you already are at. And we pray for Grant to um, experience that tangibly in his life and be his comfort through this whole process of grief and loss and, and um somehow trying to move forward even as some things um, are just so broken so we thank you for him we thank you for him in this church um, and even even the, the story we know that as we share these things it's not for naught you you use them lord even even in our hearts so we thank you for your presence that is our comforter holy spirit and in jesus name we pray amen i'm not the best talker but anyway, I look at everybody around me. I love coming to the church is because of the fact that, you know, every, everybody is younger than me, except the gentleman back there who lives in the same building. But I wanted to share something, and I just keep thinking about it, that, you know, God is really good because I had a, a financial setback, and I'm retired, and I get a little money. It's not much, but uh, my Social Security was garnished. And they took almost half of my, you know, the money that I normally receive. So I'm in a dilemma to try to do something. Maybe I go to work at Giant Food, bagging groceries or something, which that's not exciting. But it's what I wanted to share, whether it's a guardian angel or Jesus is reaching out, God is reaching out. And I get a phone call, and it's from someone who actually was able to help and write a letter and to be able to get this resolved so I'm hoping in the future that I can get the amount reduced and I also work for a home I do like business credit I'm kind of self-employed and I got two clients that signed up with me on Saturday but it's just amazing how I'm thinking I'm praying and oh what am I going to do and then all of a sudden the solution comes the solution calls and the idea comes as to what I need to do so I just wanted to be able to share that, you know, that, you know, if you're having
personal issues, financial issues, just pray on it and you'd be surprised of how, you know, things can come together and you can get that help. And I'm just uh, amazed that it did happen. I'm very happy. I'm here. I'm praying. And I just wanted to just thank everybody for listening to me. <laughs> Stuff. Amen. Praise God. All right. One more. One more. I want to quench the spirit. Good morning. Um, just wanted to give God the glory for my, um, I had a, two trials this past week, and I put it in the hands of the Lord, and um, I got through it. Just wanted to give, I just wanted to thank God and give him the glory. Once again, I, I, I have a, I have a mental illness, and I hear things, and they tell me to do things that's just not right. And once again, for the fifth time inside of two weeks, I was attacked, and for the fifth time in two weeks, I won. I mean, every time, it seems like every time I beat them, it, it, I just got to shed it because I'm so used to them beating up on me and me always losing. Now, here it is inside of, you know, a 25-year battle, I'm actually starting to win now. And that's only because of the grace of God and because of me praying and putting everything that I have in him. Praise God. Man, it's good to hear people's stories, right? And be reminded that God's at work because um, I think like Eric mentioned earlier, sometimes you go through the times when you don't necessarily know if he's at work in your life and, and you need others to, to remind you that he is working. Um, and uh, just a, a word, if you would like to one time, you know, maybe share a, a little bit more of an extended brick, um, you know, planned, let us know. We'd love to incorporate your story into the worship. Um, but I think it's appropriate as, as we, as you know, even as some people shared, you know, when maybe a question, if someone asks you, what's the church? You know, what is church? Um, because the reality and, and whatever your uh, idea of what church is, church is more than, it's, it's meant to be more than just another on the list of clubs or associations you happen to be part of. Or it's meant, obviously it's much meant, meant to be much more than just like a weekly lecture series that we believe God is our father. And correspondingly, we are family, just, just like Chrissy mentioned and others. And that's good and something to be celebrated and something churches like us spend much time talking about. But the series that we're going through right now, Scars, and as you see it there, not kind of a side joke I was thinking. I don't know how many of you are Parks and Recreation fans, but uh, that just show just ended recently. And I kind of described the series as like the April Ludgate, if you watched, of, of, of sermon series. And it feels like a real like downer, like a real dark kind of. But it's, that's really not the goal of this. The goal is to see, yeah, you know, some of these areas of scars, some of these areas of wounds, how God actually meets us there. As, as you hear testify to different people, how sometimes in our darkest situations that you can imagine that God actually meets us there and, and uses those things for redemption. So today we want to look at this idea of family, that yes, we celebrate what it means to become a family here as church. And, and there's a reason why in the scriptures, God is our father and we are called family. We're adopted into that if you're a Christian. Um, but here's the thing, part of the growth of a, uh, as a family, it's going to come from a greater understanding of where we come from. And, and that's why our family of origin is so important. And we use those terms separately in one sense, that in one sense, we, we, when we say family, we mean family here at the church, that God gives us a new spiritual family, but also we have a family of origin, where, where, you, where you were birthed, your, your home. And we're not going to say one is more important than the other. I think both are important in different ways. 
Um, but I think for us to truly understand what it means to be a spiritual family, we've got to go and look at some of these issues coming from our family of origin. And that's what we want to look at some areas of scars today. And, and to know this American culture, I mean, the, the culture we live in, it's a highly individualistic culture. So because of that, you often hear things like, you know, I am my own person. You know, no one determines who I am or what I'm going to get to. I am my own person. But I, I'd like to suggest that's just not accurate. Uh, it's, it's just not fully accurate because the reason that we talk so much about family history during premarital counseling is because out of the many factors that shape who we are, our family of origin is probably one of the most influential. That, that the family that we were born into and raised in, it probably has one of the most impactful um, just powers in our life and who we become. So when we think even in this room of how many are here today um, and, and we talk about becoming a family with one another, the truth is, uh, just like in marriage, I, when I tell people, if I'm mar- when I marry them, I tell them, you know, you're not just marrying this person, right? You're marrying that whole family you see over there, right? They all become yours too. And, and that way here, as we talk about becoming family, we all bring in, like, this room is packed right now. There's people are hanging on the rafters and people sitting up in the sound booth because there's no more seats because we bring in all of, of our family of origin history as well with us. So when we talk about how we grow with one another, we need to recognize that's there. So we're going to look at that today, and I, I just want to put this word out, kind of not a warning necessarily, but just for you to be aware that we're aware. For many of us, um, family is not a jolly kind of topic, and, and f- I'm fully aware that um, it can even be a trigger for some of us as you hear some things about family that you can, you can bring out some stuff from your heart, from your memory. So I want to pray. I don't, I don't want to sound like goofy about this, but I want to pray for God's leading, if that's okay. So let me pray for us as we dive into this. Heavenly Father, we do pray for your guidance. Holy Spirit, um, I pray for you to do good work here uh, in our midst. And we have just so many different people, and the reality is so many different family of origin stories represented here. So we pray you do that kind of crazy thing you can do where you can take one story and you can speak it exactly the way a hundred people need to hear and, and we pray for healing. But, Lord, even beyond that, we pray for hope. That you're not a God of accidents. You have clear purpose, even when our eyes cannot always see it. So help us to see that even as we talk about uh, family. Amen. So I'm going to read from uh, Genesis 37. We actually don't have the main text up on the screen. It's page 27 if you want to pick up uh, the Bibles in the benches there in the pews. Genesis chapter 37, right at the beginning of the Bible, page 27, starting in verse 1. Starting verse 1, it reads, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bound out my sheep. 
And I can imagine him like smiling as he's telling them this dream, right? His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock of Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them cry, Let's, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph, Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brother and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And as we read that, man, if, if nothing else today, if you get absolutely nothing else from today's sermon, maybe one benefit for some of you who've always believed you come from like the absolute worst family in the world, um, you'll hear the story and realize as rough as you might have had it, probably not too many of you have been thrown into a pit because you were like a jerk and left there to rot. I mean, this is, this is a dysfunctional family. And you see examples here in verse 2. It talks about, I mean, Joseph, in some sense, I mean, he's one of our heroes, right? He's one of our heroes. But the guy's, I mean, he's 17, so maybe that explains that. Not much common sense. I mean, he's tattles on his brothers. Who likes a tattletale? But Joseph, nah, 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 they're, they're being bad. Of course you're going to hate him. Verse 3, we see the favoritism that his pops makes, gets him this robe. And, and 
I'm think I'm imagining it's like right nowadays, you know, if you go to like a secondhand thrift store and you get some clothes, you're like cooler than everyone else. That's probably not the case back here. But it'd be like going to thrift store and, and, and Jacob gets everyone, you know, nice clothes, you know, from the thrift store. But then for, for Joseph, he goes to like Towson Mall. And he goes like the best store and goes to Macy's or something. And he gets this like amazing outfit for him. I mean, just this favoritism is so smacking in the face of all of the, of all of the brothers. You see verse 4 here talks about the fact that they couldn't greet him anymore peaceably. And it translated, we can actually translate this kind of in the sense of they could not greet him with peace. And in our culture, greetings don't mean all that much, right? You see one, you're like, yo. What's up? Or you don't even say, you just like tip your head. That's, that's like a greeting. But in this uh, ancient culture, the greeting or the salutation that you gave to someone, it was an extremely essential part of the etiquette. I mean, this was really important how you greeted someone. So uh, when this is included here, the failure to be able to extend a greeting, it's showing how angry they really are, how much they despise this kid. And in verse 5 and verse 9, you know, as if he wouldn't learn from the first one, but these two dreams, um, I mean, you and I, if you've read the whole story, and, and I encourage you to do Bible, open source, read the whole thing, it's good, it's good for you. But you, you and I can read this, and you know this is actually prophecy. You know that God is actually behind this whole story, and he's saying this is what's going to happen one day, uh, years down the line in Egypt. Joseph, they will come to you, and you will be, in a way, a savior. They will bow down to you. They didn't know that. They just think they got this insane kind of, what, what are you eating before you go to bed that you have dreams like this? We keep bowing down. You got some savior complex? What's going on with you, dude? Um, but, I mean, he's our hero, right? But let's be honest. The kid's kind of a brat. Um, I mean, again, he's 17, so maybe that explains a lot. But you and I, we would have all hated him if he were our brother. I don't, are we allowed to talk like that? If you had a brother or a sister that they always getting everything better than you, um, they're telling everyone how good they are compared to you, they have dreams that you are, like, bringing them dinner every night, I mean, you're going to despise them. You're going to be like, what's, what's wrong with you? What, what's wrong with you? And obviously, we see the tragic consequences of all this dysfunction. As Joseph's brothers, first they intend to kill him, but then mercifully, in some sense, they sell him off into slavery. Just sad, tragic story. And, and it's, it is tragic, but in one sense, it really shouldn't be that surprising. Because in and of itself, it, it's a horrific story. I mean, this stuff is like, it, it's horrible. But with the added insight of their family's history, it makes it a little bit more understandable why things happened the way they did. Um, in the scriptures, in the Bible, when you see this word family... Um, we're not talking of our modern American understanding of, like, mom and dad and 2.5 kids and Fido, and that's, like, family. Um, this is actually the Bible. When they talk about family, it, the line is extended over, like, three to four generations of, of the family line. So it, it encompasses more than just your immediate direct family. It's taking, like, uh, papa and grandpapa and grandgrandpapa. It, it takes in uh, the whole family there. And in that sense, families are often the result of patterns and actions over years and years and years and of multiple generations, both positively and negatively. And, and sometimes we don't talk enough about some of the positive things that have been passed down in families. And, and some of you, you can attest that in your own home. Some of the good things that go on in your family, it's, it's been passed down from generation to generation. But along with that positive, there's, there's also the negative. And, and it leads us to this idea of dysfunctional families. 
And, and even as we use that word dysfunctional, it really shouldn't mean that much to us when we say dysfunctional because what that assumes when we say dysfunctional is that there are, other, that there are families that are fully functional, which isn't true. I mean, it, it, it's just not true. I mean, some families may show less signs of dysfunction than others, um, but our common reality is that we all, to different degrees, show certain signs of dysfunction because every family is made of the one same common element, which is sinful, broken people. No matter how Brady Bunch or Leave it to Beaver or Urkel, what, what was the a family, you know, whatever your generation of, of a good family is, whatever you are, um, the one common denominator is sinful, broken people. And, and so if your idea, a conception of sin is that we are not living the way that we were intended and created to, if, if that's what sin is, that we're not living the way we were supposed to, that we were created to, then that definitely affects the notion of family, even the quote-unquote best ones. It, it's why when, and you know, every, whenever I talk to a married couple, the one thing that always comes up, yeah, you know, we've been fighting. And what's the one thing you always say? Well, that's a sign of a good marriage when you're fighting. That's normal. If you're not fighting, something's wrong. It means you're not talking, blah, blah, blah. Um, but think about it. We're saying what's normal is to fight because it's revealing that in our world, it's all jacked up. We were not created to fight. That was not created to be normal. But in a broken world, you've got two broken people, make them one flesh, you are going to get conflict. And because of that, fighting becomes natural. So, so when we look at this tragic dysfunction of Joseph's family here, we have to recognize that the seeds of their present dysfunction, what we read here in, in Genesis chapter 37, this has been sown. These seeds have been sown for years before Joseph was ever parading around in a, in a glorious robe. These seeds were there for a long time before Joseph was even around. I mean, let's look at one example here, and this is an example from Jacob's birth. I think we have the verses up here from Genesis chapter 25, and starting in verse 24. It describes when her, and this is describing Rebecca, Jacob's mother, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And this is forever in history now, a cast, a negative eye on camping here, right? That dwelling in tents has become like this negative thing, right? Anyway, Jacob loved to be in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. This guy was like a barbarian. He liked meat. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Did you catch that last sentence there? There is extreme favoritism here. Isaac loved the one son, Esau. And I don't know whether in response or it was just a natural way it happened, Rebecca loved Jacob. So this family, even the husband and wife that are supposed to be united, they're divided along child lines. There's preference obviously being shown. This is not like undercover. This is very obvious preference being shown here, favoritism. And if you follow the story further, again, we're not going to go into all this today. You can read it on your own. You discovered that this favoritism had tragic consequences. It, 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 it's what led um, in Jacob's own family, this favoritism to one son over the other. It's the same sin that led him to deceive his own father. It, it led him to steal from his brother, Esau. And, and it led 
Jacob to be driven from his own family and especially from his mom, who he and she loved him most, to the point where he would never see her again alive. That's what this favoritism did. It split this family in half and it caused repercussions. And the thing is, in the chapter we read today, in Jacob's progeny, we see the same thing happening again. This favoritism over and over and over. And, and as enlightened people, which, you know, you all, you all look enlightened to me, at least. Um, we all see the things that we hate from our own families of origin. We do, right? We, unless you're totally oblivious, you know what you don't like about the family you grew up in or that you were born into. And you say, and we vow with all of our strength, things will be different for me. Things will be different in my home. When I get married or when I have kids or in my life, it's not going to be like when I grew up. But the reality is that, you know, and things might change. You know, I'm not saying they won't change. But that the behaviors, the attitudes, the brokenness, um, you will often find in one generation after another. And that's why it's so common to see, you know, gener- generationally repeated patterns like divorce, addictive behavior, um, abuse, unhealthy views of gender, mistrust of authority, unstable relationships, and we can go on and on. But it's so common to see these different attitudes and, be, and things just trickle down uh, after family, after family, after family, generation after generation. And guys, that's why it's so important for us in the safety of a church to talk about these things. Um, because in my experience, churches usually have not done a very good job of talking about this. I mean, I don't know what kind of church background you came from if this is not your first church. But most churches I've been part of, we didn't really talk that much about some of the things that formed who we are. And sometimes it's because churches can feel like they just want that, like, shiny, happy, joyful kind of mentality. And, and, you know, turn that frown upside down kind of Christianity, I call it. Where, you know, don't get bogged down in the past because Jesus has something much better for you in the future. So don't think about those things. Just think about all the good stuff he wants to give you, which, you know, which is fine. Um, and I think sometimes it's even based on a really sound, solid theology. You know, passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17, you don't have to turn there, but it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And we fully affirm this. We fully affirm this. And, and folks will say, you know, the verses like this saying, we shouldn't get bogged down in this stuff because that's no longer, that's no longer the case of who we are. Um, again, we fully affirm these glorious truths of transfer, um, transformation, but we have to be mindful not to make it mean what it maybe doesn't necessarily mean. Because just because the old is gone and the new has come doesn't necessarily mean, like, for those of you who know computers, and I don't, so I could totally botch you this. It's like if you go into a computer and you, we, some people think that becoming a Christian is like wiping your whole hard drive. Like wiping everything. Go ahead. And I don't know if that's how it works. Like wipe, right? And that's how it, I tell my wife, can you just wipe it all? And then she'll just get rid of it. But somehow, sometimes that's what we think being a Christian is. That everything that's ever been in you, whoom, I do not have a single memory of my past life before I met the glorious Christ. Let me live this new life in him. And, and, but it's not like that, right? You still carry who you are. In some sense, yes, fully you are changed, fully you are different, fully you are new, but in another sense, you still carry the wounds and scar tissue and memories of who you were. You still remember your family. You still have your family of origin. 
And you have all of these different things in you. And and this is the reason why so many new Christians end up like giving up on God. Because they've been given a a load of something that says, follow Jesus and your life is going to be so perfect now. You're never going to worry about anything again because Christ makes it all new. And people follow Jesus and they're like, yes. And then they hit life. They're like, I I, I still got the same family. You told me everything was going to be new. They haven't changed. This is horrible. This is miserable. Life still stinks. Yeah, because the sanctification process is over a lifetime. And, and, and you, if you've been struggling with, with the Christian life saying, man, you know, I just don't feel it. Welcome to the club. That's part of it. You don't always feel it, but you trust in God to continue you along this journey. And, and I think some of this generational sin is what we see in play here with Jacob's family, with Joseph and his brothers. These generational sins that have been passed along. Deception. Favoritism. Divisiveness. Deceit just passed along through the generations from Abraham all the way down now to Joseph and his brothers. And, and the thing is, even as you and I, we might see that, but I, I think some of us, we still get a little antsy when we talk about generational sin. Just that concept of generational sin. Perhaps, again, it's the, maybe it's that individualistic mindset again, right? That you and I being in this country, in this culture, we don't like the idea that someone else's life can somehow affect my life. That feels very un-American. You know, this is my life. We don't like the idea that what someone else did in the past can still even bear repercussions in our life now. So we're not quite sure what to do with passages coming up on the screen like Exodus 20 when we read them. And this is what God is giving the Ten Commandments in the middle of it. uh, In verse 5, he says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. You're like, say what? That's in the Bible? That sounds spiteful. That sounds, what? He's going he's gonna to punish like third and fourth generation of someone who doesn't love God? And, and some of you right now, even as you hear that, if you feel like you have a horrible pops, you're thinking, oh, man, no. I'm like the second generation. This is not just going to even be me. It's going to be my kids and their kids. Are you kidding me because of my pops? Uh, you need to hear me really carefully here. Otherwise, you're going to get some really bad theology. Um, I am not saying your life is some fatalistic compilation of things beyond your control. And that the deck is so stacked against you that you're never going to have any chance in this life. You hear me? That's, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying here. Because we, I, like passages like Ezekiel 18 and others throughout Scripture, it seems to make very clear that God does not punish children directly for their parents' sins. Um, we clearly affirm here at our church, as we always have, that there is hope for anyone who puts their trust in Jesus, no matter where you came from, no matter how jacked up you feel your situation is, that there is hope for everyone. Amen? We fully affirm that, right? No matter how bad you feel your family or your life was or is, that there is hope readily available for you. Um, And along the same lines, we are a church that believes very strongly that part of our growth is when we each own our own sin when we take ownership of our own sin, that ultimately part of receiving God's forgiveness through Jesus, it's confessing, I, I'm a sinner who needs help. And and not passing the buck to someone else and not blaming someone else, not making excuses. But in the name of that belief, we have to be mindful that, that we don't ignore generational strongholds of sin in our lives. 
that each of our families of origin, as many are represented in this room here, um, we all have certain ways of living that have kind of been imprinted within us that this is just the way we view life, the way we view relationships, the way we view the world. And they exhibit their effects even if you're not aware of it. Even if you found transformation in Christ. And, and the sobering reality, and those of you who are parents, um, you're seeing this happen probably, is that often these patterns, um, they'll be passed on to your own children without you even realizing it. Shining, happy, joy, joy, centered, right? <laughs> Here, guys, here's why I'm spending so much time on this today. Um, many of you, I, 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 just from knowing and talking to you, you genuinely desire to grow in your relationship with Jesus. You sincerely want to follow him. You sincerely want to change. You want transformation. Um, but the thing is, you continue to struggle with the same things over and over again, even if it's exhibited in different ways. And, and you might have been a Christian for a long time, and you feel like, man, I still have the same problems, the same issues over and over again. And part of that, again, it's just being a Christian. It's a journey. But it, it, you're frustrated because you sing songs like In Christ Alone, and you sing it with all your heart, and you really readily believe if you just believe in Jesus enough, everything is going to be wiped clean. And you believe if you just go to church enough, if you just go every week to worship on Sunday, if you just study enough Bible, if you just pray enough minutes in a day, that you'll finally find change. And, and what happens? You hit this wall where you don't see it happening. And you get frustrated. And, and maybe I can suggest, and again, this is not an across-the-board thing, but for many of us, maybe, the reason that we have not experienced the fullness of what Jesus has a, accomplished for you on, in his work on the cross, the message of redemption, is that we haven't allowed that message of redemption to speak into every aspect of who we are, including our families of origin, including our past. And maybe that's a reason why, for, for some of us here, the current struggle that you, ex you experience, as much as you've removed yourself from your family of origin, some of us have gone a long way to try to get away from it, um, you, you still face it. And past patterns might be exhibiting in your life currently, and you might not even be aware of it. I mean, it might look like some examples I thought of. It might look like maybe for some of you, you just have a really difficult time opening yourself up to others. You just have a very difficult time sharing your heart emotionally with other people, whether it's if you're married with your spouse or with friends. You're the person, actually, you don't mind hearing about other stuff, but for you, it's very difficult to share about yourself. And perhaps for some of you, it's, it's coming from a family history, your family origin, where no one ever asked you what you're feeling. Like that, just, that kind of language was just never used in your home. Nowhere ever asked, hey, little Johnny, how are you feeling today? You have no clue. So when suddenly now you're in, you're in a, a life situation where, how are you feeling? And you go to a community group here at the village and you go crazy because everyone's, how are you feeling? You're like, good, good, everything's good, great, yeah, yeah. good. Because you don't, it's, it's a foreign concept because you've never been raised in such where people want to know what you're feeling. And maybe that's been a common pattern in your family of origin's history. Or maybe for some of us, and I know this is definitely the case for me, you have a difficulty with authority. 
you just have such a difficult time when someone who's in authority position, whether it's a, whether it's a boss or whether it's a TA or whether it's a parent, uh, whether it's a pastor, whether it's someone like telling you stuff and you just like bristle and you don't even know why you're doing it. Like you automatically, you get on the defensive. You want to fight and you don't even know why. It's like hairs on your body. If you have, they're like standing up. You're like, you don't know what's going on there. And, and perhaps some of your struggle, uh, you, maybe you come from family histories where there were no positive authority figures. Maybe as biblically designed in a home where a father was supposed to lead, maybe you didn't have a father who led or didn't lead well. So for you, why would you trust someone in authority? Because you've never seen it modeled. And then you bring that into every other situation where you face authority. You're, they can't be thinking of something good for me here because I've never seen that lived out. Um, maybe for some of us, it's your, your whole existence has been based on performance. So for you, growing up in your family and your family of origin, and this is very, this is actually really normal. Um, you were told a lot of criticism, or you were given a lot of ways to be better. Um, and when you did something really good, you were given a lot of applause. Yeah, you did it right. Great, thumbs up. You bring a great report card home. Yes. But you don't hear enough of, we love you, even when you didn't bring that stuff home, when you didn't do a good job. I'm not saying we shouldn't applaud good stuff that happens, parents especially, but we have to be careful. We don't set a system, but we're just applauding the good stuff. Because many of us, that's, that's what we're raised in. So now your, your way of thinking, because of some of those patterns throughout your life, is I got to do good stuff. I got to perform because that's what brings me affirmation. That's what brings me love. That's what brings me acceptance. And if I don't do them, well, what hope is there? And, and the side thing of that is often folks, if that's what you struggle with, it's really hard to ask for help. Because why would you want to ask for help? Because that's a sign that you can't get it done. So these things, they, they can be, di- again, it's, and it's different. I'm not saying this is exactly the case for all of us. Maybe one final one for some of us, um, you just cannot be in a conflict situation. Because for you, conflict, it always brings up, and you don't even recognize it's happening, in you and your pattern of history and your family of origins history, conflict always meant someone left. Or conflict always meant people stopped talking. Or conflict meant family got broken up. So for you, you are going to try to do everything you can avoid to avoid, con- or everything you can do to avoid conflict. And often th- what happens with this is you become like the peacemaker almost to detriment of yourself. You'll take abuse, all for the sake of trying to keep peace, because conflict, it means something is about to go really bad. You've never been able to do this. And I think you guys are seeing here, this is just a few examples. Um, if you're there, and, and, you know, whether one of these or maybe something along these lines, may I suggest that rather than just trying to get you to work harder to escape your past, God is wanting to give you genuine freedom from these things in your history. God is wanting to bring you genuine wholeness and freedom. And some of that freedom may come from acknowledging your family of origins history, even some of the painful stuff, even some of the hurtful stuff. And this has been a journey for me in my own life. Um, I, you know, I, I was home for a, I was not home. I was in Philadelphia a few weeks ago for school. And I was, I, my school, it goes for like 
four days at a time, so I end up staying there. And my parents, they still live right in the area where my school is, so I end up staying with them. I took them to see a movie, and which is like in 40-plus years of being in America, the first time they've ever seen a movie in America, so big deal. For me, it's weird that they're playing a Korean movie in an American movie theater. The world has changed. It's nuts, right? But we will go there. A great movie. It's called Ode to My Father, and basically it traces from the history of Korea when the Korean War and, and things got separated with North and South and the development from a poor, downtrodden country to the crazy, like, technological everything development it is now. And the, the, the weird thing about this movie, it almost traces to a T my father's story because he was originally from North Korea and his family during, during all of the war and stuff, they were refugees that moved down to the South. Um, doctor's family lost everything and had to escape and he was around 10 years old at the time, so he vividly remembers this stuff. Um, and, you know, for me, like in 40-plus years of being a kid for my dad, I feel like I learned more about him in like one night of watching this movie. Because we just, I mean, we just don't talk because we got the whole language barrier and everything. And he's, you talk about family, we, we don't talk deep stuff like that. We just don't. And, you know, and it's weird, awkward. I'm sitting in a theater, and it's not full, but all I hear is, like, sobbing around me. And, you know, because all these Koreans are watching this movie, and it feels so real, particularly for my dad, because there's scenes of, of leaving North Korea and leaving with your family. And he was the oldest son, so he had to take care of his younger brothers and sisters and, and stories of, um, you know, shining shoes on the street. You know, basically they were on the street, like 10 years old, shining shoes to make a few dollars, things like that. And I realized that... It, it made so much sense to me as I thought about it because he, he has always been the, um, th this sense of because his life was so hard then, what became part of our family pattern, I lived like a charmed life. Like I didn't learn. I was the most, I was like the most useful guy or useless guy, useless. I didn't learn how to do anything. I didn't learn how to change a tire. I didn't learn how to mow the lawn. I didn't learn how to fix anything because my dad, his default mode would be, my life was so hard, so I'm not going to make your life hard. And he didn't, he didn't voice that. He, just, he would just do it. And he would say, no, I've got it. He would never buy anything to eat. I've told stories of this before, right? We, were, we would go to Burger King or something, me and my, me and my brother, dumb little kids, and, uh, you know, he, we would order food, and he would say, oh, I don't like those things, so I'm not going to order it. And we're like, oh, okay, we'll, we'll eat yours too. And, you know, stupid stuff like that. But his whole life was about sacrificing. His whole life was about trying to make our lives better. And here's the thing, it sounds really good, but it created a really bad stuff within me. I grew up um, deformed in a certain way, mentally, socially. I was very inept. I didn't know how to, like, do a bank account. I didn't know how to take care of things. I was, like, a stupid kid because of that. And, and in, in many years of development, it led me to become really bitter towards my parents, especially my, my dad. Because it said, because of the way you raised me, this is what happened. And you know what happened? Here's a trickle down. In response, what's happened to me then, I've become extraordinarily intent on people doing things with responsibility. So I've become actually a very harsh person. I, I'd seen this starting to happen. So even with my kids, especially when Deborah, when she was really young, I started to see this, this harsh kind of sense within me coming out when, when she would need some help. I would be, no, you're going to do it. You can do it. You can learn to do it. And, and pushing, and in some sense, that's good. But what I look at now is I realize some of that, it was because my heart was compensating. My heart was compensating. And I praise God that he's revealing some of this stuff to me to kind of try to stop some of these cycles. 
Because I could have seen myself pushing and pushing. And, and, and I do the same thing to family, people who work with me. Like, I'll have this very high standard of this is what you need to do to be a responsible person. All to say, we've all got our stuff. We've all got our stuff within us, in our, in our, in our histories, in our stories. And for some of us here, I mean, your journey might be involved better understanding the stories of your family's uh, members of origin. For some of you, your story, your journey might involve trying to better understand why the people in your family did things the way they did. Why did they respond in this way? Man, why was mom like that? Why, why, why did dad act like that? Why were they so harsh? Why did they never say a kind word? Why did she leave? Why were they so quick to put their hands on me? And, and I want to I make crystal clear here. This is not a way to excuse abuse that you might have received. I, I want to make that really clear. This is not to say, well, you know, everyone's a sinner, so I'm, I'm sorry that's what you had to experience because, you know, whoever was a sinner... Rather, this is more for you. This is more for you because God wants you to be free from some of the burden that you've been carrying for such a long time in anger, in trying to explain even to your own mind why things happened the way they did. And God wants to free you from those things. And, you know, what are some, how do you forgive people in your family history who you're, you're fairly sure their sin directly led to your pain? How do you forgive that? I think when we look at Joseph, we see some of it, it's time. I mean, when did Joseph have his encounter? And, again, I'm going forward in the story. You can read it. But he encounters his brothers again. They don't know it's him in Egypt, and he is risen in the ranks after 22 years. And much of that time was spent in jail, a lot of time for self-reflection. These things often will not come overnight. It, it, it can be, involve a lot of time. But here's the thing. It started with Joseph. It started with him. And I would encourage you, if you as you look into your family history and your, biological, um, your, your family biology, and you see, like, really painful stuff, and, and if, as I said, I don't know if this will help you or not, you cannot control what any other person does. You do not have the power. You are not the Holy Spirit. You do not have the authority to change another person's heart. You don't have the authority to make someone um, ask for repentance and forgiveness. You don't have the power to make someone be humbled and come to you and want to reconcile. The one thing you have the power to be able to do is bring your own heart to God and say, God, here's where I am right now, and I'm not very happy with who I am because I've got anger and it's stewed down into my other relationships. I, I see it now. My past hurts have led into my present life, and it's affecting things. God, I don't want to carry this anymore. God, I want to give this to you. But Joseph, it started with him. In the same way for us, it starts with us. Because we see that Joseph, he, wrote, re, he rewrote his life story according to Scripture. He rewrote his life story, though it was going one way. He rewrote it according to Scripture. We see the one famous verse from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. I think it's up on the screen where it says, he's talking to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Because if you read the story, Joseph went through all of this stuff eventually so he could save his family, so he could be placed in charge of the food in Egypt, be like the second in charge, and be able to feed his family when famine would have crushed them, that God used all of these things to save them, and they indeed did bow down to them. What a hopeful verse that even in the biggest mess, God was using all of these situations. So for, for you here, as disheartening as some of your families of origin might be, and from knowing some of you, I know this case, as, dis, as dysfunctional as, as your family you feel it's always been, as you've seen and is, as you've lived out a life of sin and brokenness through your family story, can you imagine that God would make beauty out of those ashes of your life? The, even in the worst things that have gone in your life, that God can take those and make beauty out of it. You know how you can be sure? Because Joseph's redemption ultimately points to Jesus' story. Joseph is a great story, but it ultimately points to Jesus' story. Again, another son who was loved by his father, but without all the other drama. Another son who was precious in the father's sight, who came to love his brothers, yet they sold him into slavery. They sold him into death. 30 pieces of silver rather than 20. They sold him into that. They left him to die, and he did die. But so that he could save them. And what looked horrific, God was using in the life of his son to save his brothers and sisters from death and condemnation. And it's Jesus' story. And if you are in Christ, his story becomes your story. Amen? If you are in Christ, his story becomes your story. It means believing that God is in control and that he's even working in the brokenness of your life. And some of you are still going through it right now. And in one sense, obviously to heal you, but even more, to redeem it for his glory. Not just to heal you, but to actually use that for his glory. He's honestly, right, for some of you, that's how you came to know Jesus in the first place. Because your family of origin was so rotten in your eyes. And it was so hard. And you went through a lot. You didn't have a father. You didn't have a mother who cared for you. You didn't have people who loved you. You were abused. You were molested. You were treated badly. You were not loved. And that's ultimately what brought you to God. Where God said, here is love that you cannot purchase. Here's unconditional forgiveness. Conditional based upon the sacrifice of Jesus. But for you, you couldn't earn it. In your brokenness, in your tears, find hope, find redemption in Jesus. And guys, that's why church is so important. That's why this community is so important. That's why this family is so important. Because many of us can't imagine a life like that. We can't imagine a life where things would ever get any better. Some of you, you live in the generational curse of looking at your family history and saying, this is who I'll ever be. This is, this is all I'll ever be. And God wants to remind you, in Christ there is hope. And we need one another to point one another, to tell each other that our stories are not wasted, that our hurts are not trash, but God is using those things to draw us closer to him and heal other people as well. So can I ask you to stand? Can I ask you to stand with me? And I'm going to read a couple of verses in a second here. And I want to speak to everyone, but particularly 
I want to speak to those of you who've always feared what family means. That when people in church talk about how you can have a family, you don't get happy, you get really fearful. And part of you never wants that because for you, it's always brought the harshest of images into your mind. You're scared. You actually have no problem believing that generational sin because you've seen it happen over and over in your family. You're afraid you're going to pass it on. For some of us, maybe you've been part of your family's dysfunction, if we're just being honest. Maybe you've led to your family's dysfunction. If, if that's any of you here, let me read this. And this is a verse I read earlier, but I didn't read the whole thing. It's from Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Here's the good news. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Yet, yes, there is generational sin. Yes, we need to deal with it. But in Christ, look at the promises. Steadfast love to thousands of generations. That in Christ, some of the dysfunction can end with you. Some of it will just fully be there and you've got to work through it. But in Christ, you can start a new story lying in him. Let me encourage you, believe on this day that God is rewriting your life story according to his will and ways. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for my friends here, family members. Lord, some of this stuff is not easy to hear because the idea of family has always led to deep guilt, shame, hatred, fear. And if we're in those moments where we're brutally honest, sometimes major questioning of you. Because we say... If you truly loved us, why would you have put us into a family like that? But Lord, I pray you give us the awareness of Joseph to see that what in this world seemed like evil, you were actually using for good. And for a lot of us in this room, maybe us sitting in this room is evidence of that. That you've used the harsh things, the difficult things of our life. And God, now that you want to bring us to a place where we build, in some sense, another family, a spiritual family, where we bring real hurts. We don't pretend. We don't gloss over. We're honest. We say, this is some of my history, and I'm seeking redemption in it. We bring it to one another. We point one another's to Christ and the hope that's in you, that you rewrite stories, that there's no one beyond your hope. So I pray, especially those in this room who, are, who have been just strangled by fear for so long, choked by shame, pounded down by guilt, hindered by regret, frustrated by inability to grow, just trying harder, trying to escape our past, escape the things we hated about our family. Lord, would you bring redemption into those areas and bring freedom today as we fix our eyes on you. We thank you, Lord, that there is great hope in you and you promise steadfast love to thousands upon thousands when we are in Christ. So we're going to sing. We're going to receive communion. If you're a Christian, I would encourage you to come up. Both sides at the same time, take a piece of the wafer. Remember the broken body of Jesus, our older brother that came to die in our place, even as he was sold by us for silver in our place. 
and, and dip it in the cup and be reminded of the blood that forgives our sins, the sacrifice, and, and worship him. If you're not a Christian, we'd love to talk with you about what it means not to just be a better person, but to find family. And let us know. Mark it down in the card or come talk to one of us. We'd love to talk to you. So let's, let's worship God.